0: This is Only the Strong Survive, a podcast powered by Khan Media, where we dive deep into the world of business, leadership, and innovation. I'm your host, Dan Kahn, and I'm honored to have you join us today. So let's get ready to learn some survival skills together. Uh, I wanted to kind of do a cold open here and just hit you with a question right out of the gate. So the the topic for this episode is decision-making and risk-taking, building a mission-driven company. So I wanted to start with a question that I like to ask all entrepreneurs, which is, Can you tell us about the biggest mistake you've made in business and what you've learned from it?
1: Biggest mistake that I've made in business, and this is about 27 years of entrepreneurship, is not taking big enough bets probably early in my career. And this is coming from someone that's taken a lot of kind of small and medium-sized bets. And I think it's come from realizing that all bets are tough. Like every new business, every new idea, you know, it's always, there's an uphill, climb on, on almost anything new that you're doing, and it's all difficult. And so just being willing to take a big enough bet and make sure that the problems you're solving are big, uh, that's probably, a, and I wouldn't call it a mistake, but it's probably been my biggest learning opportunity over the last 25 plus years.
0: So swing for the fences, right, is what your kind of, your takeaway was, is you weren't sort of, now, what do you mean by, now, is that in businesses that you actually did start, or these are regrets of businesses you wanted to start and didn't, or just, you know, kind of give us a little more detail on that. Like, do you have a specific example in Mark?
1: I would probably say that some of it might be related to even people, you know, great people are expensive and hard to find and being willing to take bets on big talent. That would be one thing. I think starting new businesses. I think early on in my career, starting thinking small, developing new products, not necessarily taking big enough swings. And the chances of success with almost any problem are, are, are mid-level to low. Like if you're trying to solve a problem, it's tough to solve problems and it's tough to start new things. And so I think part of it is if you're gonna take the time and the energy and the effort and the risk It needs to be a big enough problem we're solving. Uh, If you're going to hire someone, you need to take enough risk to hire an outstanding person. And that requires like more commitment, financial commitment, resource commitment, training commitment, just the willingness to to really be bold with your bets because they pay off bigger. When you hire a great person and you invest more, there's a bigger payoff. When you solve a bigger problem, there's a bigger payoff. I think, you know, you get stuck in, the psychology of calculating the risk versus reward, which kind of encourages most humans to take small bets. And so, you know, the last five years of my life, I've recognized that my time is very precious and I need to take bigger ones.
0: Interesting. That's really, you know, and, and I think I've, I've had similar experiences in my life, and I, one of the things that i found, I don't know if this applies to what you're saying, is part of it too, at least for me, was earlier in my career, I wasn't willing to take those bigger bets because first of all, I, I I was not I had not yet grown numb to the risks that you have to take before you get to the reward. You know, earlier in my career and with my businesses, I was always afraid of the big boot in the sky that was about to land on me. So I was always taking kind of these small incremental bets and making the safest decisions. And if there was an employee that I could hire at a moderate pay rate or a killer one at a high pay rate, I would take the moderate one because I was afraid, well, what if I can't make payroll in two months or three months? As I've gotten older and I've gotten more financially secure and I've had other kind of things happening in, in my life that have given me a little more security, I've felt more comfortable taking the big swing. So I, I wonder if some of that comes with maturity and, and financial security as well. Or do you think it's just it's just a mindset?
1: Well, I mean, I'm forty-seven and so, you know, this is not this is something that's come to me over time. I think it's an interesting question about the evolution of kind of your mind when it comes to taking risk, because I would think natively you have less to lose early in your career. Great people are a multiplier. And so when you find great people and you build great people, they don't just, they're not just 20% better, they're like 500% better. And so I think when it comes to human capital, one of the things I've learned from experience is there's just no substitute for investing in your people and finding great people, cultivating them, investing them, listening to them. I mean, that's that's probably like if there's one killer app, it's like actual humans <laughs> and and create people and and i think to your point you know when you start a business out you know it's easy to for to fall into this because you know you're like i have a new company i need to break even and if i go hire someone and pay them more money than i make how am i ever going to do that and it takes a while for you to realize that humans are your most valuable asset and so you know when you don't hire great people or you you don't invest in your people you know you can't expect a great return
0: I love the fact that that is your focal point for that answer, is people, because you're building a business that's all about it. Let's go back a step. So you're a serial entrepreneur. I know you've started a lot of businesses. Can you walk us through your background uh, and, and kind of first talk to the point up to Happy, your current venture? So how did you get to the point where you're at now?
1: You know, I had like a pretty unconventional childhood. Both of my parents were doctors. They were both psychologists. And not just psychologists, they were psychoanalysts. And uh, I'm guessing you've never had two psychologist parents before, correct? Yeah. Yes. So, so dining room table conversation was was quite exciting. And my dad was was actually a world renowned psychologist, so um, you know he had a lot of pretty high end clients. So a lot of our dinner table conversations started with, "Well, I can't tell you who this is," and then he would tell some story about some you know relatively famous executive, but I didn't know who they were. But had a lot of dinner table conversations surrounding people, and so. My dad was kind of like a wannabe entrepreneur and so he would always talk wistfully about, you know, some bad investments that he was making that he thought were great that he would then be telling my mom about several months later that lost all their money and so he was he was not a good business person he was he was very good at his real job which was psychology that did not distill down to the economics world um but with my dad, he always kind of uh, glorified entrepreneurship, and just you know, he he loved the idea of starting and building things. Although he himself wasn't really a builder in that sense, and so I dropped out of college uh, actually my sophomore year at UCLA to start my first company. Which that was another fun thing, which is try coming home and telling your PhD parents you are dropping out of college. And what was your major? Uh, I, well, I was the second year, so I mean, I was on okay. like a business track. Um, you don't recommend that, um, doing that, coming home and telling that, unless you want to be in the permanent dog house with your parents, it's your doctor parents. But it's funny. My dad, I remember my dad and mom, they like, you know, we went out to dinner in West LA somewhere and they were both yelling at me. And then as we were walking in the car, my dad kind of looked back at me, winked and patted me on the back. Like, Hey kid, like I'm okay with this. You know, like, I know I had to yell at you in front of mom, but it's actually okay. Well, you're it. So, did you tell them why you were dropping out? You said you were going to start a business. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this was 1996, and I was actually starting an internet, a parts company that was based on using the internet to sell parts. So, in 1996, as you can imagine, you know, we were just at the very beginnings of the internet, but I had a pretty good feeling that the internet was going to be a great pathway to selling parts. So, I, I started using mailing lists at the time, um, but it was, you know, an internet based parts business. And It was some really interesting lessons to be a 20-year-old entrepreneur. You know, you talk about learning cash flow lessons early. I remember going into the bank when I was, I think I had just turned 21, and the business had gone really well. Uh, You know, our sales were growing like 50% a month. And I remember walking into the bank and sitting down with the banker, and he said, how can I help you? And I'm like, well, I'm here to borrow some money. I own a business, and it's like we're growing 50% a month. And he goes, okay, and he, you know, hands me a loan form. And it says, list your assets, right? And my assets at the age of 21, because my business was growing so quickly, you know, in cash flow trouble. So he's like, well, list how much money you have in the bank. And I think I had like $136 or something that day. I had my list of orders, which was like $25,000 of orders. And he said, you know, son, you know, I really appreciate you trying to borrow some money here, but, you know, I can't loan you money if you don't have any. And I'm thinking like, boy, that's a really strange thing to learn at the age of 21. I'm like, I need to have money to borrow money, And he says, yes, sir. And I'm like,
0: okay. So that went into my black book of, of cash flow management as a CEO. Yep. I think I was about 26 when I learned that one. Like they won't loan it to you when you need it, but they're, they'll throw it at you when you don't. So it's it's funny how that works.
1: Oh, yeah. But so, you know, oh, I ran that for about a year and a half. And then I decided that working 15 hours a day when you're 21 and all your friends are you know, going to a bar or somewhere like that, if you instead are, you know, spending your time and energy working at 11 o'clock on a Saturday, wasn't very fun. I ended up selling the business. I think I sold it for like $80,000 when I was 22 or 23. I was like, man, you know, like I can retire basically. So I got bored and then I'm like, what am I going to do? And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, you love cars. You should go work for a car magazine. And I'm like, all right. So... That's how I ended up at Peterson Publishing, but I I wanted to take a much
0: bigger risk. Well, I remember you and I served on the board of directors of SEMA at the same time, and you ended up as chairman during a, I mean, coming out of COVID, that was a pretty tough time to be a chair of anything that produces a trade show. But I think it was even, it might've been before you were even chair. I think you were chair elect. We were at a board meeting and we were walking out of the meeting and I vividly remember we were in the hallway of some hotel our conference center, and we're just chatting for a minute. And and here I'm, you know, we've had kind of, you know, our businesses are, are about the same age. And and I, I respected you and thought, okay, he's built a successful business. Your kids are about the same age as my kids, and I, I thought, okay, James is doing really well. That's great. I'm happy for him. And you made this comment to me where you said, well, yeah, you know, just between you and me, I'm I'm thinking about like starting something totally different outside the automotive space, and it's going to be like more HR related. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. And in my head, I'm thinking like, what? The are you, what are you talking about? That's why? And it was just like, and then like, you know, as over the years, as you kind of started building happy and getting into it. And obviously I'm a, I'm a total believer in what you're doing. And we're going to talk about that today. But I just remember in that moment thinking, this guy is nuts. Like he's got young kids. He's got a successful business. He's clearly doing pretty well. Like what the hell's going on? So I guess my, my next question is, you know, you're in a, pretty good position in your career personally it seems like you've got a great family your wife Melissa is awesome you're the incoming chairman of a major trade association you've got all this stuff going for you why why at that moment do you decide okay it's time to kind of kick over the same castle and start over again
1: that's funny it sounds like you and my wife should talk I might be crazy you know that's it was funny. funny I had some I had somebody tell me almost the same kind of gave me the same lead up like and it ended with like are you crazy this person actually described a goat that has spent 10 years climbing to the top of the mountain. And finally, it gets all the way to the top of the mountain and it stretches out, looks around the mountain. It's like the proverbial goat on the mountaintop moment. And the goat says, where's the next mountain? Oh, that was me. You know, so look, it depends on how you define success in your life, Dan. And my dad worked till he was 85. And the reason he stopped working was he got an Alzheimer's diagnosis. It wasn't because he wanted to stop working. And... I realized less than five years ago that the most precious commodity that we have is time. And it was really important for me to do something big with my life. And I felt like I wasn't done making a difference in the world. And I know that sounds, you know, that might sound a little altruistic or whatever, but I come from a family of doctors. I come from a family of people that have have teachers, of educators, of professors. And so like in my blood is people. Connecting with people, teaching them, educating them, just giving back. And I'd spent 25 years, and this is, boy, this is no disrespect to your current line of work because what you do is vitally important. But at some point, you know, I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I have helped people sell probably billions of dollars of automotive parts. And that's beautiful. But I'm ready for like the next challenge. I'm ready for the next chapter. And I didn't want to have any regrets and I, I had some ideas about things. I, I, my own evolution as a leader, you and I have talked about this offline. So, you know, I hope I can share. I think you and I have a lot in common about, you know, how do you learn how to lead more effectively? And part of it is you and I are very hard driving people. And frankly, you know, I look back on my career and my leadership in my first 10 years, maybe as a CEO, and I moved a lot of dirt. I mean, I made a lot of things happen. But I didn't always treat people the way that they deserve to be treated, and there was collateral damage in my leadership style. And it took me a long time to learn like how valuable creating healthy culture and organization was. And it wasn't because like I was a 22 year old guru. I mean, it was like probably the opposite. Like I was a 25 year old know it all. You know, I might have had all the answers, but people didn't want to follow me. I felt like I've had some ideas. You know, my evolution as a leader. You know it's really had a profound impact I think on me and my family and I think I've done a much better job with my people and our team and uh you know I was just I'm really passionate about you know creating great cultures and so
0: So you wanted to build something mission driven that was the goal is it was hey let's do something that can actually make a positive impact let's let's help people is that was that kind of what was kind of the thought that kept kind of looping in your head
1: yeah, and not to take anything away from the work in the automotive space because i I absolutely love the automotive industry and I love the work we did and the work that our teams did. But you're you're right. I mean, you know leading with purpose and leading with a mission uh, that really spoke to me and and frankly, you know, I knew that there's a lot of I worked with a lot of CEOs, probably you know the last few years of Power Automedia, I probably talked to a 100 CEOs, you know or more a year and i understood that like some of the challenges that ceos face they also felt alone they also felt like you know no matter how innovative they were and how forward thinking like almost every great leader i know has struggled with building their company's culture especially this last year or two these are really significant challenges i mean this is not easy to do especially in the future of work now with hybrid workplaces i mean this is a tough it's a tough problem to
0: solve and so it's true i just had this conversation so I have a business coach. I think you've had a, a, a kind of a history of, of business coaching and disc, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but that was for me, and I think you've had a similar experience. I, I agreed, and I agree with what you said. I was, I am I am proud of what I've built in my career. I am not proud of my behavior my first 10 years as a CEO, and it was that I just, I didn't know better, and I didn't know myself, and I didn't know that you are in a position of power as a CEO, even of a very small business, and you can use that power responsibly or or not. But I, I tended to bully people, and and I'm I'm not proud of that. And I like I think you said it very well. I think I also left some collateral damage in my wake. And only through you know groups like Tab or Vistage or YPO, I, I'm a Tab person. But I found you know, I took my first disc assessment and it blew my mind. I went, oh my god, how does this like quick test thing I took know me so well? And then through coaching, I was able to sort of soften my approach and lead with a little more EQ and. I think I have a long way to go, but I'm I'm making progress. Is that, did that start at power where you kind of started going through that arc and then you realized, hey, this is something that maybe we could use this sort of type of coaching in a more scalable way to help people? Was that where sort of the seed was planted or was it more your own personal journey caused you to reflect first and then come up with the sort of idea later?
1: No, I mean, that's an interesting question because it gets down to kind of like how and what we do at Happy, which I, you know, of course love to talk about, but the underpinning of underpinnings of it, I think are a little bit different, which is it just started with a personal journey and just wanting to be a better leader. And I, like you got a, an executive coach by the name of John Delmatoff about probably 10 years ago. And, you know, I was really, really fascinated to learn about myself. It was like a process of self-discovery and I'm just starting to understand myself better. And then learning just how do I, I mean, I actually started with listening, just learning how to be an effective like listener. I mean, I know it sounds so simple, but I really was not a great listener as a young CEO. You know, I thought my job was to have all the answers. And so I, I did a lot more talking than I did listening. And it took me a long time to really understand like effective listening techniques. I mean, I'll give you an example. You can listen to somebody, and this really has nothing to do with happy. But you can listen to someone, and not really, and just be waiting to respond. Yep. It's not really real listening. And then, you know, I took like a sales class and it taught me this art of mirroring. So you'd like listen to someone, and then you would just mirror back to them. And then I thought, okay, well now I'm showing them that I'm listening, but I actually wasn't even listening. I was just parroting back what they were saying to me which a lot of salespeople are taught that that's like a good engagement technique. But, but frankly, that's shit. Like that's just a tool you're using to pretend like you're listening. And so just part of the journey was just starting by just learning how to genuinely authentically listen to people and then realizing like, Hey, there are like a lot of leaders, managers, organizations, like there are a lot of people that need to learn this and Just the benefits of their organization, you know, are are really great. I mean, once you learn how to listen, you're empathetic and you're kind and you understand how to, what someone needs from you. Like these things are very basic, but they're the difference between great leadership.
0: So let's dive into happy companies. Tell us, kind of give us the elevator pitch. What is happy? What's it do? Why'd you start it? What's the mission?
1: yeah so i mean the idea really is taking technology so it's really the idea of using behavioral science and you know our goal is to help people and teams work better together and you know some people call us an hr tool i like just saying that we're a people platform but it starts with just a belief that by accelerating employee engagement you can improve the outcomes of the organization like organizational performance is significantly improved when you improve communication and collaboration and productivity like
0: without the people component it's really hard to have a high performance business so it's a software right it's a, it's a it's a site basically it's a SaaS company software as a service what specifically what does it do if somebody if you were going to explain to someone at a cocktail party this is what this business I started does Especially if someone doesn't even know what, say, like a disk assessment is or anything like that. Can you explain kind of how how the tech works?
1: Yeah. So I like to call it a people platform, but essentially what we're doing is we are mixing behavioral science and technology uh, together to create a platform that helps people communicate better, collaborate more effectively, improves productivity. I mean, the concept is essentially accelerating organizational performance by activating what we would call employee engagement. So that's your elevator pitch. I'm guessing you wanna know how it actually works. How does it work? So we say it's like, uh, I have this little joke. I say it's like magic, but it's actually science. But no, we've got our own behavioral assessment. Um, It's inspired by DISC, which is about, you know has about 80 years of EQ research behind it. But essentially in about 10 minutes, the happy platform learns your work style. And we roll it out to an entire organization at scale. And so it learns your work style, and it learns the work style of your coworkers, and it builds a user manual on how to work with you at work. So Dan, I I'd, I'd love. I know. I know you've taken Happy Profile, so I've seen yours, so I have insider baseball on you. Yes. But the easy, the easiest way to think about it is, it's like a baseball card for everybody in your workplace.
0: That's actually a really good analogy. And, and full disclosure to everyone listening, so we are piloting Happy at, at my agency, Con Media. Uh, we were, I think, one of the first to to kind of beta test the platform, right? And it is really an interesting tool. And and I would say if someone came up to me and didn't know James and didn't know his company and said, what is this thing and what are you guys doing? Or even this is even a conversation I've had with some of my employees where they say, what is this thing and why do I need to do it? What we basically tell them is, is this is a communication improvement tool. And, you know, I talk to, like you just mentioned uh, yourself, I, I talked to hundreds of CEOs a year because of the nature of my job. I'm, I'm essentially a counselor to all these CEOs, and, and I like, you know, half of my job is helping them with marketing and PR. Half of them is it's just listening to what their problems are so I can help solve them. And without question, hands down, number one problem every CEO I've been talking to for the last couple of years by far is employee engagement. It is like, and, and like number two is so far down the list, it's not even close. And certainly, you know, hybrid work, uh, remote employees. Uh, All of that is part of it. I think at least my personal opinion is, I I think part of it is also, you know, you've got younger generation employees, you know, the millennials and Gen Z in particular that are just kind of taking a different approach to the workplace and to workplace culture. And then you add on top of that the fact that the world has been a pretty stressful and intense place the last couple of years. We went from a pandemic to wars to terrorism to all this stuff that's sort of just inundating people. So everyone's just kind of stressed out and they're kind of overloaded with information and they're trying to figure out their place in the world. And it's a lot harder to connect with people over a 20 minute Zoom call once a day or over Slack than it is sitting across from them at a lunch table. So so that connectivity, that shared experience is just a it's a tougher thing to accomplish for a leader than it ever was before. And and so for us, uh, just the last few weeks of, of working in happy, what's been great is it is a cheat sheet. I get, you know, these little notes on my coworkers that say, hey, well, you know, this person is a coordinator and and this is how they like to interact with people and this is how you should approach them with criticism or with compliments. And it, it, it that cheat sheet really does make a difference. So it, it's really cool that you guys are trying to find ways to help improve connectivity and communication in an environment where it's Technology, in my opinion right now, is can be good with things like happy, but it's also creating some distance between people too, because you don't have to go sit across from that person anymore. You're not in the cubicle next to them. You might be across the country from them. So-
1: Yeah, there's a what, lot of research that's coming out now that says essentially that you know there's a lot of people that prefer hybrid work, course, or remote work. But they are reporting less satisfaction in their careers, less happiness, less contentment, and so it's there's a double edged sword. I mean, connectivity is really critical, and that's part of what Happy was designed to do was to connect workplaces. And so I I kind of told you the first part about it, which is you know the incredibly smart baseball card, or I think you referred to it as Cliff Notes. It's like Cliff Notes to your team, which is really important, right? But connectivity is critical. I mean. How do you take a hybrid or remote team or a somewhere in between team? That's one of the things I'll tell you is like a lot of people, when a lot of articles that are coming out now, the research is like, well, hybrid work environments or remote work environments. Well, especially in organizations with scale, you know, these are somewhere in between situations where, you know, you have people that are, some are remote, some are hybrid, some are in person. It's not actually just one type of work. And so, it's actually easier if you have an entirely remote company because your entire culture is built around like operating remotely and using those tools. And then if you have one of these, which is much more common, somewhere in between companies, which is like, well, Helen's remote, but John comes in the office, but Dan comes in the office, but he's sometimes remote. You have all this context switching. And, you know, how do you create connectivity is a big, is a big issue in your organization. And so that's one of the things we're solving at Happy is you know, being able to create a profile at work. We've got, you know, kind of an enterprise social media, you know, part of happy, which allows you to tell your story at work and in your profile. You know, that's a big part of the, of, the, of the platform is being able to understand each other. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about creating connectivity and understanding in your company. And I mean, you talked about it in your own business about how critical it is. And one of the challenges that you've had You've got staff all over the country and imagine at scale, like with some of our pilot customers, you know, these are enterprise companies that have a thousand employees and they have an office with a thousand people in it. And then they have 300 people working remotely. And then maybe then they're even operating in another state. And, you know, the challenges of creating connectivity at scale and enterprise are even two or three times more difficult than what,
0: you know, maybe even you're contending with. Absolutely. Well, and you're right. The, the hybrid thing is harder. I, I think, you know, we tried to do a hybrid Christmas party, I think either a year ago or two years ago, and it was not a great result, you know, because you have, you know, 20 people in person at a local restaurant and everyone's eating and drinking. Then you got another dozen people sitting at their house where we sent them some booze and they're on Zoom, but they're on Zoom at nine o'clock at night or found the East Coast. It's like really late and they just look, not particularly thrilled to be there and, and it was not it wasn't great so like it is the hybrid thing is hard so talk a little bit about ai and sort of the um the the literal like because one of the things that's cool is cool is it's not just the baseball card that, that you've developed the thing that's cool is there is sort of an active engagement that the software is doing to kind of keep people coming back to it and keep them sort of engaged in learning how to continue that that evolution towards connecting with their employees and their coworkers in a, in a more meaningful way. How, how does that work?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the to give you kind of full circle, right? And, you know, you know, most of this, of course, because you use the tool But there's what we call the happy coach, which is really the kind of the most critical part of the, of the whole platform, which is, you know, not only do you have the Cliff Notes guide to your people, but there's a lot of very specific individualized, personalized guidance and coaching that happens in the platform. And, you know, you can seek it out. So if you, for example, if you have, let's say you have a conflict with a coworker, you can ask the coach to help you with that conflict and it gives you individualized and personalized guidance. And so it knows your work style. Um, the science knows the work style, of your coworker, your boss, your direct report, and it's able to give you, you know, relevant coaching. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of coaching guidance that um, But it's not just coach too. There's what you're referring to is like the behavioral nudges. So the platform also works in flow of work. So you get uh, a daily email. You can get emails on your coworkers and direct reports, the people you work with every day. You can get behavioral nudges through Slack and MS Teams and some of these other tools that you're using. So it's like a very native, uh, it gives you like very native coaching. But there is an AI component to it. Um, I will say all of our coaching content has all been curated by leadership coaches, but we do use generation, uh, you know, generative AI in the in the creation process. You know, you're talking about you know thousands and thousands of pieces of coaching advice, and so we use AI to develop a lot of the coaching content. But then it's all reviewed and kind of approved and curated by real humans. And AI is good, you know, with our our own kind of proprietary uh, language model and our database and our assessment technology, we're able to... The AI generates like pretty spot on coach content, but it's about 95%. And the problem is in the coaching space, the 5% that isn't very good contains a lot of risk for an organization. And so, for example, one of the coach topics in, our, in the Happy platform is help me with an employee review. And so... You know, do you want to risk live generative AI to make a, a mistake or give a bad piece of advice when you're about to conduct an employee review of a vice president in your organization? I Do I think the generative AI and the language model would be good enough in maybe two or three years to where there's enough guardrails in place that that's safe? Probably. Um, right now, most, you know, chief people officers or most VPs of HR of any organization that has scale, you know, that's, that's too risky to have high quality coaching advice completely rendered through ai so we're a hybrid but you know our platform's built to be able to use the ai in a more you know significant way down the road but it's it it inspires a lot of questions because one of the things i just wanted to cover real quick is one of the biggest questions that i get is like will ai replace human coaches and like will happy is Happy's goal to like eliminate a coach from an organization. It's actually the opposite. It's actually designed to empower human coaches, like facilitate them, give them more information, um, help provide them more context, tell them what questions to ask. Like we still think that managers and human coaches are like an incredibly vital part of the coworker leadership relationship. So it's really an important part of the equation. We think that like our school and AI in general can be used to, Actually, be very additive to the human coaching model, and it's not in competition. It's it's actually complementary.
0: As you're explaining that, it's funny. Earlier in this interview, you were talking about your dad, and he was, you know, this kind of well well uh, world renowned or well regarded psychiatrist, and he worked with famous business leaders. And to me, he sounded kind of like Wendy Rhodes from from Billions. You know, he's like, you know working with these like super successful entrepreneurs and keeping them kind of on track. You've kind of you're creating that, like you're creating the 21st century version of that in a way. Has that, I assume you've sort of thought about that, that this is sort of, you're, in a way you're kind of, you're, you're the entrepreneur he wanted to be, but you're also kind of following in his footsteps in a way as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's funny. That's, you know, that hasn't been lost on me. I mean, really helping people. I think it's like a great worthwhile mission, right? To be a, a teacher and a coach. I think One of the things that I'm excited about that Happy does is it can do, it can create really measurable improvement at scale. And so that's something that like, it's very hard to do on a one-on-one basis. I was actually um, talking to a really top executive coach that is working with a handful of the Fortune 500 yesterday. And we had this really awesome conversation and I was showing her the platform and the tool. And one of the things she said to me is she said, you know, I've really had a hard time. I'm working with the CEO and... I'm really having a hard time figuring out how we get my work distilled to like his entire, he, there's 80 VPs and senior vice presidents in this organization. And he's like, how do I take what I learned from you and how do we get this to my entire team? And so like, and just it, just upon seeing Happy, she immediately recognized like this coaching concept at scale can really kind of like multiply your impact as a coach. And that's, that's really what we're trying to do is not replace a coach, but we're trying, you know, if, you're, if a manager at nine o'clock at night has to respond to a tough email, they're probably not going to be running down someone in the HR department or in the L&D team for guidance and advice. What they're probably going to do is either respond to the email reactively or in a frustrated way, or they're going to need some coaching advice right then about the person they're working with. And, like, that's what happy is, is, like, it's a Cliff Notes guide that's, like, right there, like, always on. So you're, like, you get that email that frustrates you at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday, and hopefully you pause for about 30 seconds, and you look up the person that you're, the work style of the person you're responding to, and you understand, like, okay, let me get some context. Let me understand why this person might have sent this email. Let me take a deep breath and figure out how to be responsive. And like, we want to be that baseball card or that Cliff Notes guide that happens right there on a Friday at nine o'clock because your business coach isn't accessible or is that a movie? And, you know, we don't want you to respond to that email in a, you know, in a way that could cause some damage.
0: I like it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I've certainly been there and done that. So I appreciate that, the, that you're working on solving that problem. What's your style what does Happy say about you, and how has that affected? The, I mean, bootstrapping and self-financing and and starting a company is a pretty hardcore, stressful thing. So, what's your personality type, and and what's your what's your work type, and how has that impacted you? Now that you're on what business five now, is that what this is? Is that? Yeah, business five. So, that's an interesting question.
1: So, I'm our Happy is modeled on Disc, so Disc is our kind of underpinning. You know, foundational model, but we've 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 added our own technology, our own kind of modernization of the framework. But I'm a DI in DISC. and happy we would call that a catalyst. And so, what most people would relate that to is I'm a Type A personality, but I but I do have some people skills, like I do orient toward people, even though I'm a Type A. But I'm a very driven person, and so the the positive parts of working with someone like me is I'm driven and I'm innovative and I like developing solutions and I'm a problem solver. You know, maybe the challenges you might see with my personality style would be impatience. I have a hard time slowing down. I like big picture uh, concepts. I struggle with some details. Like it's tough for me sometimes to, you know, really think through a problem. So, you know, these are the things, you know, I think adaptability though, Dan, you know, you and I talked about that offline a bit. I mean, Ultimately, your goal, I think, as a leader is to become more adaptable and to be more flexible. And so what I'd like to say is, yeah, I'm a catalyst or I'm a DI. That's my natural style. But what I really want to do is find out if I'm working with you, I really, what I'm working on is trying to learn you and what you need from me. And if you're somebody that likes to use data and facts and figures, or if you're risk averse and you want to. You want me to prove it to you, you know. Then that's what I need to do, right? I don't need to treat you the way I want to be treated. I need to meet you where you want to be, and if that means you're a data person, then you know an adaptable leader understands their people.
0: Well said, uh, especially from the leader of a mission-driven company. So I think that was great. Last question before I let you go, and I did not prep you for this one, so. What is the most impactful business book that you've read in the last few years? So
1: What Got Got You Here Won't Get You There by Marshall Goldsmith. That is probably my favorite book that I like other leaders and managers to read. He gives you, I think it's like 22 things that, you know, 22 risks that, you know, you can have in leadership. And I think like I fell to like 12 with the 22 or something. It's more than 50. But th- the concept of that book is very simple. What got you to the point where you are today is not necessarily the things that's going to get you to the next chapter of your career. And sometimes you can create, like, for example, one of mine was over-improvement. Everything had to be perfect. Well, that doesn't work very well when you're working with actual humans that make mistakes. And so, like, a manager would bring a project to me and it was 90%... You know, done. It was ninety percent grade, and I would, I couldn't help myself. I'd have to point out the ten percent that had to get better, and in doing that, I just totally killed their ownership of the project. And so, one of Marshall's like theories in the book is you're better off with somebody, something that's ninety percent is good, and somebody has total ownership over it, and something that's hundred percent perfect, but they just totally just let go, right? Because it's not theirs anymore. So my second book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. So he describes the entire story of starting his tech startup and all of the pivots they had to go through to survive. And it made me realize, holy crap, almost every tech startup, the inside of it looks, you know, it's it's not it's not pretty in there. Right. Like this is really hard stuff. And the problem is the media makes it look, you're like a darling, right? Like, oh, Facebook's, you know, this rocket ship, everything's great. And like the people that actually worked at Facebook over the first 10 years realized it was like a complete, you know, disaster internally, right? To scale a company that fast. But on the outside, it looks perfect. Right. So that was a great book. It was awesome. And uh, Ben's writing style is very accessible. And if you haven't read it, Dan, you should read it. I have not, but it's going
0: to be on the list now. You know, There's so many good books. You know, it's it's hard to name just two, but those are probably my two favorites. Those are solid recommendations. And I admit that even I sort of would fall into that trap of thinking that these things just sort of scale magically. That's what I read um, Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk book uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I, I definitely don't think it's as good a book as his Steve Jobs book. But that was one part of it that I thought was fascinating is they got into the nitty gritty of just what a dumpster fire most of these businesses were up until the moment that they became super profitable. And and it was kind of shocking to hear just how gnarly things were in places like SpaceX and Tesla up until it actually worked. It's funny because
1: Tesla is just such like a media darling or just, you know, in the media spotlight. And like, look, Tesla's made its mistakes. Elon Musk gets good press. He gets bad press. But there's another book on Tesla by Tim Higgins called Power Play. And it is the same kind of thing. I haven't read... Walter's book yet but you read this book and you're like every chapter is like you can't even believe any of this stuff happened and you're like but it's Tesla like everything they do is just gold plated it's perfect you know like you know it's just like this entrepreneurial you have this entrepreneurial vision like not that Tesla hasn't had its issues but it's like Elon's such a smart guy you're like well he just kind of made all the right moves and you realize he actually made like a hundred mistakes like and it just barely survived, right? Just like how it's
0: just constantly flirting with death all the way up until the very last second when things somehow turn around. And, and I yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny, a big takeaway I had through my career in this, and it's helped me with happy,
1: but it's just also just been a good, uh, just a good life lesson, which is like, man, life is hard. And so if you expect life to just be really easy, right? Like you're like, wow, everybody's else lives looks okay. Like, why is my life so hard? It's like, if you actually go into your business or your idea every day going like, I expect today to be a really tough day, you're like delightfully surprised when it's like not that bad. But like life is hard. Like startups are hard. New products are hard. Like none of this stuff is easy. So if you just like reset your mindset to realize like, hey, I'm an innovator and like innovation is hard and people are hard. Like, It's not, it's the world. Actually, the world will delight you when you find out, like, oh, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be today. But if you wake up in the morning and expect everything to be perfect, you're disappointed at the end of every day. So, like, the power of your mindset is really big. And it's like, if Elon Musk can screw something up so badly so many times, like, I'm pretty
0: sure I'm going to mess a few things up. Agreed. And that is a, really good point to end this episode on. I think that is solid advice. So James Lawrence, Happy Companies. Thank you so much for all your time today. Thank you for joining us. And uh, hopefully everyone at home got a kick out of this too. And uh, where do they learn more about happy? Happycompanies.com. It's hard to remember, Dan. All right. Very good. Check it out, everybody. Thank you, James. Thanks, Dan. That is it for today's episode of Only the Strong Survive. I hope you found today's insights valuable. And I want to thank Our guest, James Lawrence from Happy Companies for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to share it as well as subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. I would also ask if you have any questions or comments or even ideas for a future episode, you can reach me directly by emailing dan at otsspodcast.com. Thank you for your time. We'd love to hear from you and we'll see you down the road.